Welcome back to another episode of the Major Journey Podcast. Today's special guest is uniquely positioned at the intersection of cannabis, commercialization, and compliance. She has amassed over three decades of successful real-world experience operating in an FDA-regulated environment. Her first held leadership positions in sales and marketing with global responsibility and in Fortune 500 pharmaceutical companies led her to become an attorney who spent her career in the courtroom holding pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers accountable for deceptive marketing and defective manufacturing. But more inspired by medical innovation than litigation, she founded 68 Partners, a consultancy dedicated to helping life science companies and cannabis brands build sustainable businesses that have a transformative impact on consumers, patients, and the global economy. She is also the Director and Regulatory Committee Co-Chair of the New York City Cannabis Industry Association. Without further ado, Sherry Tarr, welcome to the show. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Sherry, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule with everything that you have going on and all the incredible work that you're doing. For those who aren't familiar with you and your work just yet, can you share with us a little bit about where your career started and how you got to where you are today? Because I'm sure there was a couple twists and turns along the way. Well, Mike, um, more than a couple, I assure <laughs> you. <laughs> um, you know, I often describe it as, you know, the Southwest Airlines route map. How did, how did you and I, you know, we could start, we could start and reverse engineer. How did you and I find ourselves on a podcast in the middle of 2020, a COVID year, right? So I guess, you know, where should we start? Maybe start with the present. So here we are. Um, we found ourselves, our lives intersected through cannabis um, and our, relationship really defies age, it defies gender, it defies um, where we grew up and how we grew up. Um, so, you know, um, first of all, I, I want to take a step back and just thank you for having me um, and for um, inviting me to your journey, because that's really what this is all about not only life, but our careers and then our work in cannabis. It's really a part, it's, it's about bringing other people into your journey and leveraging all of our assets, all of our experiences so that we can do well and do good together. So um, long way around the, the question, the answer to the question, my career depends on how you look at it, uh, your life's career or your professional career. Um, so I don't think that they're, uh, they're separate, but we'll start with the more traditional answer my career. As you mentioned in the intro, I'd started in sales and marketing with the pharmaceutical industry, um, straight out of the university of Michigan, where I went, um, for, uh, undergrad, um, you know, there were lots of industries that, uh, are represented on that campus that, um, you know, are, are recruiting, um, folks from our school. And, and uh, I've often asked myself, given the options, you know, automotive and technology and, you know, transportation, um, computer, why did I go with healthcare? And I, I, I think that the, that the answer to your question um, just now is, is the answer to why did I take that path? Hmm. Um, my career has always been every move that I've made, every non-traditional step that I've taken 
um, every decision that I've made um, has had to do with how can I have the, the greatest impact on the greatest number of people. Um, so I started in healthcare, in sales, and here's where life comes full circle. This was over 30 years ago. I, I'm, you know, I'm getting over my age shaming <laughs> and putting it out there to the world. Well, over 30 years ago, I started in sales and I started in laboratory sales. So all of what we're hearing now about testing and diagnostics, not just in the cannabis space, but we're all getting this education through COVID of the importance of testing and, and um, diagnostics and laboratories. Uh, that's where I started. I started selling laboratory products, everything from Becton Dickinson syringes all the way up to half a million dollar chemistry and hematology analyzers. Um, and uh, uh, progressed in sales um, and then went inside and went in marketing um, and uh, ultimately headed up a strategic business unit for a major pharmaceutical company, oversaw uh, global marketing, had PL responsibility, launched products in an FDA regulated space. Um, and uh, as I've shared with you before, um, I, I had a front row seat to how the sausage was made and how it was marketed. And uh, I thought, well, we're at a point now where um, the, the learning nerd in me intersected with that, that is there more that I can do? Um, what's my next move? Not from a necessarily from a, how do I continue to climb the pharmaceutical industry ladder, which by the way, that's a whole nother story for a, a woman um, with the background that I had coming up in pharma um, was no um, easy climb. Let me just say it that way. In addition, I really, um, I saw uh, how products were marketed and manufacture, manufactured more from the perspective of the patient than from the perspective of profit. Um, and I, as I look back in my life, that was the beginning um, of the formation, if you will, of my values and the formation of um, sort of the consulting that I do now, which is at its core, what is in the best interest um, of the patient? Because ultimately what's in the best interest of the patient is ultimately in the best interest of the business itself. Mm -hmm. um, and, I'll, and I'll connect that dot in a second, but just to finish the path, um, uh, after, after my work for Big Pharma, I, um, it was either MBA, MPH, or JD. And the JD was never part of my thinking ever. I grew up in a pretty insulated in environment. I'm pretty much self-taught, self-made, and uh, there was nobody suggesting law. Um, although my, uh, some people in my um, pharmaceutical days, I don't think they meant this necessarily as a compliment, but suggested that perhaps my voice would be better um, heard in the courtroom. <laughs> so, Hmm. When I was thinking years later what my next move would be, um, I decided to go to law school um, and I had an agenda. Uh, I wanted to get out as soon as I could, um, get in the courtroom and uh, hold pharmaceutical and medical device companies accountable for deceptive marketing and defective manufacturing because I was part of the problem. 
And now I wanted to be part of the solution. Um, and that is to help to bring products, medical products to market um, uh, in a more safe and efficacious way. So I spent um, many years, let's just say many years um, uh, in the courtroom. Um, I deposed, deposed hundreds and hundreds of witnesses and I was involved in some of the highest profile pharmaceutical mass tort cases. Um, and uh, you know, that's not a panacea either. Um, it's hard to know. I'd like to think that the work that I did at the end of the day did have an impact. Maybe it, maybe it shed light um, on the process for the consumer. And it also shed light on other uh, pharmaceutical and medical device companies who would think twice about making some of the shortcuts that they made that got them in the courtroom. Um, and then as you said in the intro, which is really nicely put, thank you for that. I, I was much more inspired by um, innovation uh, than litigation. And how could, again, it's how can I have in the next phase, I think, I think of it as a, if my life is a four phase clinical trial, yeah. I hope I'm only in phase three right now and phase four is gonna be amazing. But I thought after all that, all that legal work, what's the next step in my life and in my career where I can maximize impact? improve the quality of life. It's always been about that. It's always been, all right, I impacted this many people as a mass tort pharmaceutical you know, litigator. It's hard to measure how many millions of people I, I may have impacted, but it, it was, it's about, okay, I wanna do more. Um, and I, at my core, I'm a bit of a marketing wonk. And I always thought to myself when I was in the courtroom where I was doing depositions of pharmaceutical executives, I'm thinking, how did we get here? I'm a former marketing executive. I marketed these products. Surely we can do, a, we as a pharmaceutical industry could do a better job. How did we get here? And I found myself in the middle of these litigations thinking, okay, there are a lot of people dead and injured. There's a bloodbath going on. Is there a way that I could um, help to prevent some of that in an even greater way than just being a lawyer? Um, and so I left the, the traditional practice of law. I call myself a recovering lawyer mm -hmm. um, and uh, opened up my own consulting practice um, about a decade ago. So yeah, I go in like 10 year, just like a clinical trial, about 10, just about 10 years to get the data. <laughs> And I've been working with um, life sciences entrepreneurs, small to mid-cap companies, um, investors, um, and um, advising around commercial viability, liabilities. And uh, not to take away, I think the natural next question is, how did I get to cannabis? So I'm going to pause because that was a, a lot I just put out there, give you an opportunity to ask a question. No, that was great. And I, I love how you, I've never heard this analogy before from you about the, the four phases of a clinical trial and how you kind of look at your life that way. One thing that really jumped out at me was that it almost seemed to me like you had a moment where you looked in, in the rearview mirror and said, oh no, I, I almost feel like I'm part of the problem. I need to kind of shift and become a part of the solution, which I think is going to you know kind of lead us into how you 
transition from that part of the clinical trial over into, into cannabis. Something I also wanted to, to ask you about without getting off topic was, you know, prior to you and I um, having a conversation, even before the show, I always thought about commercialization and compliance as relatively boring paperwork, right? But then after talking to you about it, it, it was almost like a light bulb went off for me. And it was like, wow, there's way more to it. And it's actually much more closely tied to marketing than I personally ever thought. And that's something that I think would surprise a lot of folks in this space, especially in the cannabis space. So I'm going to let you finish telling your story about how you transitioned from cannabis. I mean, from, you know, big pharma, from the courtroom over into cannabis. But if you can also touch on that, I think that would also bring a lot of light to not only to myself, but to the listeners as well, as to how commercialization and compliance really plays a role in marketing and branding and, and really the overall rollout of a new product that's about to be launched. Yeah, well, good. I mean, all of our conversations are paying off because the way you ask the question reflects now you you have an understanding. So honestly, the answer to the how did I end up in cannabis and tell us how commercialization and compliance are inextricably linked are actually quite related. So um, that, the answer is, um, yes, when people like, look, that expression that you've heard before, context is decisive. So co the context, if you're, if the context in your mind for compliance is, oh, um, it's what a burden, it's an obligation, it's a bunch of boxes I have to check off and a bunch of binders I have to read and it's something to fear and something to dread. Or you can, I almost think compliance is like the word we should never use anymore. And, and, and when I do other talks and I do many of them, as you know, I, I try never even to use that word. Um, and I talk about um, how do you build sustainable brand equity? So if you think about compliance as the segue to sustainable brand equity, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? And I'm going to unpack that in a second. In a similar sense, if you think about compliance, now we're in the medical space, we're in the, the cannabis is a, is a product that is, in, that, that is ingested. It's a product that falls into the healthcare space. So we're in, we're in some very serious ground here. So if you think about compliance, as patients or as consumers, or if you really want to personalize it, think about it from the perspective of your kid or your mom or your spouse or your grandma. And if you wake up and you go into the day, the proverbial and the literal day, whatever your role is inside any cannabis company, inside any pharma company, inside any medical device company, if all of your mindsets are, um, what can I do in my job that will maximize the safety of this product? Mm -hmm. Because if a product is safe and you market it in a transparent, trustworthy way, guess what happens? What happens? People buy it. <laughs> it it's so simple, it's, but so true. Right? So if you think about compliance as the segue to sustainable commercialization, right? 
If you build a product with the mindset from the outset, I call it compliance from concept to consumer. From the moment the back of the napkin idea is hatched about your medical product, your cannabis product, if you think about it from the perspective and the context of, I need to make a safe product that does what I say or what the testing says it does and consistently deliver that value in a safe way and market it in a way that's transparent, that's trustworthy, people will continue to buy it. Mm -hmm. So if you don't think about compliance as an obligation, but you think about it as an opportunity to maximize profits, as an opportunity to maximize revenue, as an opportunity to maximize your potential in front of investors, I get asked this, I know, you know, we'll probably get to this later in our conversation, but, you know, I often get asked what, a, what do clients call you and ask you about, or what, at the end of the day, what's keeping them up at night? You know, they say, you know, I, many of them are startups, they need money. Well, I, I need to get in front of investors. I need to convince investors. Well, I, I'll tell you um, the fastest, most, and by the way, people want to do it quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So I answer the fastest, most sustainable route to brand equity and investment dollars is build a product that's trustworthy and delivers value and market it in a way that's transparent. Um, and especially, I'll tell you what, there's a lot we can learn a lot we can learn from this year about life and about lots of things. But what have you heard more about this year than almost anything else? Well, you've heard, we've heard a lot of things we probably haven't thought about before, but safety, safety and reliability. Now we're talking about vaccines, right? Do, do, do you think that people will take a vaccine if they don't feel that it's safe? Not at all. Not at all, right? Um, they're waiting for other people to take it and be okay. They're waiting for Dr. Fauci to take it and be okay. Um, and so look, if you can trust a product, if you can trust what the label says, if you can trust what the website says, if your product consistently delivers value in a safe way, because we're talking medical products now, if it consistently delivers value in a safe way, well, there is your segue to sustainable brand equity. So that's where commercialization and compliance are inextricably linked. And, and let me unpack one more thing, because I think this will also help um, as people are thinking about branding and they're thinking about how do I put my product on the market? Commercialization is, is not just it's not just marketing marketing is a component of commercialization but commercialization in the context of life sciences and cannabis is how do i get my product what is the regulatory path to get my product on the market into the stream of commerce right that's what commercialization is marketing and branding and and you know your promotional materials all of that of course is an element of the whole commercialization spectrum but at the, at the beginning and end of the day, it is how do I get my cannabis product or my license or my business, how do I get it open or on the market um, in a highly regulated space? Um, and how do I market it in a highly regulated space? And I will tell you 
that time and time and time again in the courtroom um, for years, when we litigated these cases, it, 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 it came down to, if I, if I could put it in one slide, it would be, it, it would be showing sort of this central artery that I would call compliance and then marketing above that as a department and then clinical trials and clinical studies below that. And where the clinical trials and the regulatory were misaligned with marketing, marketing's getting ahead of its skis, marketing's making claims that aren't supported by the studies and the data, where those begin to be misaligned is where the problems begin and where ultimately we end up in a situation where um, you're either getting warned if you're lucky um, and then ultimately in the courtroom. So that's where commercialization and compliance are inextricably linked. Did that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so you have my mind spinning right now with a million different things, but okay. one thing, which is great, which is great. Um, so one thing, and I know a lot of us, especially, you know, with the new year on the horizon and everybody looking to maximize 2021, obviously, you know, 2020 put a lot of hardships in front of people and some businesses did better than others. Definitely. Knowing that, especially in cannabis right now, I think we're approaching a phase where more businesses now than ever before are going to start thinking, okay, how do we get more strategic about the exit? Right. This was this was all part of the vision, but now we're getting closer. We're getting closer to seeing, you know, legalization happen or unravel in some way. As we start getting closer to that, and as businesses start to prepare for the exit, ultimately, you know, I think some some business leaders are, are kind of hoping to get gobbled up by a big big pharma company just because of the lucrativeness of of that kind of a situation. Sherry, with everything that you've experienced, been a part of having, you know, so much experience working with the FDA and, and big pharma, how does, and this is where I think there's a huge connect, how does commercialization and compliance make that process so much easier? And by easier, I mean, how does applying the right practices, the best practices of commercialization and compliance, like you described to your business today, how does that make a cannabis business more attractive to a conglomerate as big as a, a pharmaceutical company. How what's what's the connection there, and how does that make a company more attractive to be bought out by a huge a huge pharmaceutical company? If that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, there's a couple. There's a lot of things in, in that question. A lot of a lot of thoughts. So let me just grab a couple of them because they're <laughs> swirling. It's a really it's a provocative question in, in a couple of ways. First of all, where there's money, there's madness. Mm. And I noticed, I've noticed that more so in the cannabis space than any other space. And that says a lot as a former pharmaceutical executive and a former plaintiff's trial lawyer um, for me to say that in the cannabis space, um, I have seen the manifestation of that concept um, about where there's money, there's madness. Um, I, I think before any company, no matter what stage they're in, whether they're at the concept stage, whether they're just getting on the market, whether they are um, 
they've already figured out their exit strategy and they're, they've got one plan and that is to get bought by, as you say, one of the conglomerates. I think wherever you are in your commercialization cycle, your product life cycle, your business life cycle, your lens should con consistently be on building brand equity. Um, and I guess it goes back, this was unplanned, right? So this is just, my answer is pretty unplanned because so was your question. Um, and, I, and it goes back to my original answer to your first question is, you know, a big conglomerate, if that's your exit strategy, um, you still have to build brand equity. You still have to demonstrate to that conglomerate that your consumers want your product. And how do you do that? How do you get consumers to want your product? Well, you build a product that people can rely on that consistently delivers value. And I don't mean it to be that simple. There's nobody, you know, more so than myself, having had PL responsibility, who has firsthand experience having to launch products in a regulated space and generate profit for a, a, a multinational conglomerate. Um, I, I certainly understand that this is a incredibly complex, ever-shifting marketplace, and there's more to the there's more layers to what I just said. However, you, at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, a conglomerate's not going to buy you. A partner's not going to partner with you. An investor isn't going to invest in you if you don't demonstrate your capacity to deliver a product that consumers will buy. Um, uh, and as I think about that question even more about eyeing the exit, it, it, it prompts me to think about, um, I've been doing a lot of reflection. I'm sure that a lot of people have this year. And, you know, you can plan an exit, but watch out for your goals hmm. and your planning because you might preclude yourself from other opportunities because you're myopically focused on a particular outcome. And so my, getting back to your question, I, I think that you should prepare yourself as a brand developer, as a license holder for any number of different outcomes and quote unquote exits. Um, and again, it comes back to if you are um, operating responsibly, if you are marketing responsibly, if you are ma manufacturing responsibly, people will continue to buy your product Partners will want to continue to partner with you. Investors will invest and, you know, buyers will buy. Mm -hmm. um, so have your exit strategy, I suppose. But before you get there, think about what is your strategy to maximize your reach? What is your strategy to maximize the, your, your product's trustworthiness? What is your strategy for... Um, building a sustainable business that somebody would want to come in and pay you nice dollars to acquire. Mm -hmm. does, does that make sense?
Yeah. And I, I love, I love that response and it makes so much sense because what I'm, what I'm picking up is, you know, it's good to have that, that end goal in sight, but you can't, you, you can't kind of overlook the steps that you have to go through and really succeed at them no matter what your exit is going to be, whether it's this company or that company or that company who you want to buy you, you have to focus on, you know, tr- uh, being transparent, being authentic, making sure that everything is done correctly, building trust. These are things that no matter what your exit strategy is, you have to really maximize them to really put yourself in a position to give to give you and, and all your stakeholders the best opportunity at the end of the day. So I like that. I like that response that it's universal. And then I think, you know, me and, and anybody listening can really take that and apply that to any business because it's so true. It's so universal. And like you said, yes, it does sound, you know, simple in theory, but it's not as easy to actually execute, which I, I respect you for actually for saying it and, you know, acknowledging that, you know, it may sound simple on paper, but to execute something like that, it does take a lot of brain power and a lot of work and a lot of due diligence. Absolutely. And there is nothing simple to it. And there are no shortcuts. I often tell clients there's a really, really stark difference between being efficient and taking shortcuts. Mm -hmm. So you can maximize efficiencies, but there are no shortcuts in in this business. Now, people are taking shortcuts. Excuse me, people are, are you know, they, they've taken risks and they've taken shortcuts um, and uh, some of them will be found and some of them have been found. Um, and uh, others may get out bef- and do little to no detectable harm. Um, but, you know, rather than come at it from that perspective, you know, what are the shortcuts that I can take? What's the fastest route to profit? Um, I say, um, your fastest and most sustainable route to profit is to do the right thing um, in the long run and not take the shortcut. Right. Um, be efficient about the steps that you take, but um, don't 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 short don't shortcut it. Um, uh, and since there are ways to do it right, you don't really have a lot of excuses um, yeah. not to do it right. Right. Um, and that, that gets to another sort of hard lesson learned. Um, and, and that is about, um, don't be penny wise and pound foolish, I guess is one expression that comes to mind. Um, you know, rather than wallow in fear about the FDA coming and knocking on my door or, or sending me a warning letter, rather than wallowing in fear, wringing your hands about that, or calling and asking, how far can I push the envelope? Maybe another way to approach that is, let me reach out to experts um, that can help me to do this right. This is a twister game landscape. Um, uh, I'm aging myself. I don't even know if twister exists, but it was a difficult game. (laughs) Um, And there are lots and lots, there's a lot of black ice out there. I call it black ice and icebergs. uh, I suppose the one advantage of getting older and, and saying there's um, uh, less, there's more runway behind me than ahead of me. Um, I, I also can see icebergs even before people put their boat in the water. Mm. Um, and I can tell you in this space, firsthand experience, there's a lot of black ice out there. 
And so be okay with not knowing and be okay with reaching out. I tell you, one of the most liberating days that I had was when I decided I'm not going to practice law in the traditional sense because lawyers, and I get to say this because I, I still I have a I still have a license and I have a lot of colleagues that I respect, but you know, um, lawyers don't know everything and they don't need to know everything, even though they pretend to, and even though they have an expectation that if there's a lawyer in the room, then they need to be the smartest person in the room. One of the most liberating moments for me was when I got comfortable saying, I don't know. Let me ask somebody else who does, or let me go find out. Cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm a doer, you know, first you learn, then you do it. And then you teach somebody else to do it. Um, and I'm a big, big fan of saying, um, and appreciative when others call me and say, I don't know this part of the business. I don't know the, the commercialization and compliance side. Maybe they spent 20 years doing GMP. That's different than what, the, what I do. We certainly are related or something, something even more stark. Um, if you have zero experience, um, in cultivation, for example, I don't, I, I, I don't have firsthand experience in cannabis cultivation. Um, so you, you know what I did when I first got into this space? You know what I did. I, I read every single thing I could get my hands on. I spoke to every single person that was willing to talk to me. I went to every event that I could afford or that I could access. And if you open up your mind, whether you're an expert in your own right, whether you're a brand, whether you're a licensed applicant, a licensed holder, there is so much to know in this business. And the awesome thing about it is that this space has attracted so many people with leverageable skills and education and experience that just be comfortable reaching out um, and asking for help and quite frankly, paying for, for that, paying for that expertise to help you make better, more informed, more responsible decisions. That's great advice. And I think that's, I, I applaud you too, for, for having the, having the humility to just say, I don't know, I'm going to go and reach out to somebody. And I think that's probably one of the quickest ways to learn, to learn from the best, right. To learn from the best, to grow, to expand your network. And so I think that's one of the best pieces of advice that anybody, no matter what area, no matter what arena of this space they're in, I think that advice is so applicable and it's so universal to, to everybody. With that said, what what are some of the, if you don't mind me asking, what are some of the things that that you're working on now or some of the things that that folks in the space come to you, you know, to consult with or to, to help with? Could they be, you know, licensee applications or is it when they're developing a new product and they need your help before they actually go into launch phase? So, for, for the listeners, I know you and I have talked about this a little bit before, but um, can you just kind of break down, you know, kind of where you plug into to certain companies and how you can, you know, help them go from concept to commerce and really hit the ground running successfully without having to worry about cleaning up a spill on aisle five? <laughs> and I, I like how you picked up on the concept to customer. The good for, oh, I, it's working. My messaging is <laughs> cutting through. Well, actually, I suppose that was an unintentional uh, segue 
to one answer. Um, uh, I, I feel like I have a responsibility to help to change the stigma in this industry through my own consulting and through my own words and through my own positioning of my company. And a lot of people, I know it's not a direct answer to your question, which I'll get to. Um, a lot of people, you know, they, they ask about how do I, how do we change the stigma? Um, and if they're not asking, they should. And I say we all have a responsibility to, and an opportunity to change the stigma. Um, by being responsible marketers, by being responsible lawyers, by being responsible consultants, by being responsible in our messaging, in our branding, in our manufacturing. Um, so how do I plug in in this space? Uh, in a, in, a, in a couple of distinct ways. Um, I work with licensed applicants um, and I worked with, I work with, with brands um, at all stages of the product life cycle. Um, and I, if it's a licensed applicant, um, and by the way, uh, back to the, the messaging and being responsible, um, when it comes to mixed messaging mm -hmm. and being responsible, there is so much uncertainty and mixed messaging out there about branding, about compliance. I've heard everything from buy a template, do it yourself, just um, don't make medical claims. I've heard the excuse as recently as yesterday. Well, the FDA hasn't published their regulations. So it, so basically that's my excuse um, or they're unclear. Um, all of this is not only irresponsible, it's just wrong. Um, it's wrong, not only in the moral sense, it's just wrong factually. So uh, where I plug in is I, and it gets to a little bit of forecasting and, and predictions about this industry. I say, no, you're wrong. There are FDA regulations and they've been applying them from the beginning. Um, and the warning letters will continue. Um, and um, I don't foresee substantial changes um, by the FDA uh, uh, about the regulations um, that will um, that the compliance that, that cannabis companies uh, will will need to adhere to. Um, so where I plug in on the licensing side, I help license applicants in a variety of ways. First of all, this is not a DIY project, and this is certainly not a do your do it yourself. Whether you're a license um, applicant or a 
brander um, mm -hmm. and I'll get to both. But from the licensing side, I work on um, developing product safety plans, business operating plans, um, creating the narrative um, that connects all of the components of the licensing application. You know, I often say that everybody starts off with the same set of regulations, but only a few of those applicants get the license. And what distinguishes those licensed applicants from the rest? And it's much more than just regurgitating a set of regulations. It is really understanding. And this is where I plug in on both the brand side and the licensing side. It's understanding not only that the regulations exist, but translating those into practice. How do those regulations impact your operating plan, your cultivation plan, your product safety plan, your lab testing plan, your investment strategy, um, demonstrating to the adjudicators when you're talking about a license applicant, demonstrating your deep grasp of these complex regulations and how your team, which by the way is another component is assembling a really, really, really um, robust experienced team um, to actually execute on the plan, Absolutely. to execute on the application. Um, but you need to be able to translate the regulations into um, practical reality. And I, I would, I would suggest that that's where I'm distinguished from a, a lawyer, for that matter, who most likely has not um, actually had to commercialize a product in an FDA regulated space. So um, clients have come to me after they've spent a lot of money on lawyers um, who are very, very good and they're great at what they do. Um, you know, in this case, good at regurgitating what the regulations are and what the risks are if you don't comply, but they don't actually tell you how to comply. Mm -hmm. They don't actually tell you what or help you with what, how can I, what is the nuanced way that I can represent um, my product on a website, on a promotional piece, on my label, that's both compliant, but also compelling so that the consumer actually buys it. It's, it's, a, it's as much marketing as it is law, and it's the, it's the art of regulations. So that's where I plug in. Um, it's the art of regulations. Um, it's this, that what you said at the very beginning, it's that intersection of commercialization of compliance and cannabis all operating in the same brain um, and coming up with product safety strategies, commercialization strategies, regulatory paths, brand strategies that um, are that balance compliance with creativity and compelling marketing messaging. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm so happy I'm I'm so thrilled that you put it that way because as you were going through and you were breaking it down for us, I it clicked for me and I was like, wait, we're connecting the first question that I asked you and it was or one of the first and it was how does this actually connect to marketing? Because it's not just boring paperwork that eh, I'll get it done on Tuesday, whatever. Maybe I'll set aside some time. There really is a huge bridge connecting the compliance side of things and the marketing. And it's not something that you can afford to just look at as an afterthought. And I'm so glad that you actually, that that was your response because that really just kind of 
prove the point. Um, so thank you for that. But yes, no, that, that 100% makes sense. Yeah. And you know what? And, and, and there's a lot of talk about labels and, uh, oh, I've, I've looked, I, 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 it, it relates to the, 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 the classic intersection of commercialization and compliance, mm-hmm. by the way, Websites are the new labels in in the context of FDA oversight, and I'll and I'll and I'll say that to you, and I'll, I'll explain that to you in a second. What I mean by that, but if you think about, um, if you think about uh, labels as your representation, your first impression, don't blow it. <laughs> it's an opportunity to convey transparency to convey trustworthiness. It's not just about the colors that you choose and the design that you choose. It is, it is, the, it is the aggregation, it is the compilation of all of that. The creative with the compliance that makes for a compliant, if you will, label and a, comple- and a compelling label. Um, and I just want to stick with labels for a second because um, I've looked at thousands of them um, in the course of my over 35 years dealing with FDA regulated and marketed products. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dealt with, I dealt with them when I was heading up marketing for big pharma. I dealt with them every single, every single case that I handled um, as a lawyer uh, had to do with the label at beginning at the end of the day. And if we think of the label as almost a contract with the consumer, you're saying, this is what my product, this is what's inside. Um, This is what you can expect and what you can rely on, says the manufacturer to the consumer. And you as a brand developer and the marketer and the manufacturer have an obligation to be truthful um, as much as you are c- compelling in the way that you deliver that truthfulness. Does that make sense? Um, and it is the most, it, in all of my years as a litigator and as a pharma marketer, it is the most scrutinizing piece um, of, by the way, it is considered a promotional material Um, in the context of FDA oversight. A label is actually considered a promotional material by definition. Um, uh, And um, most of the problems for those pharmaceutical cases started with a misrepresentation or actually a a secrecy. Uh, It's either an overt misrepresentation, you say something overtly or you conceal something and you don't say what the customer would otherwise want to know or that you should have told them. Now, with everything gone remote and virtual, um, the warning letters that I'm reading now um, not only include the label, but are often starting with, we have reviewed your website we have reviewed your social media. So when I said a few minutes ago that um, the, their, the website is the new label, so in terms of FDA scrutiny, in terms of that, if you will, that first contract 
with between the consumer and the marketer um, is often now the website. So you asked me a question of, of, uh, a few questions ago, and it just, this is how it goes in a conversation. It's almost like a stream of consciousness. So another thought that comes to mind is that um, no matter what stage you are in your brand, whether you're a concept um, or whether you're nearing your proverbial exit or your wannabe exit, um, if you are early stage, um, get in position. Mm. Start now, start early um, with this compliance mindset. Get your Get, your, get yourself, get your brand, get your people, get your team, get yourself in position, okay, to be responsible and to, be, and to build a sustainable brand. If you're at a later stage, maybe phase two, uh, maybe you're already out there, but you're expanding your product line, well, this will be a really good time as we enter 2021 to get an audit. Mm. Have somebody like me um, just get an audit of your front facing materials. Um, even if you, you, I actually had somebody come to me the other day say, no, we're good. We're good. We had a lawyer look at our website and they said it was good. Um, and I'm like, give me your website. <laughs> What's your domain? <laughs> um, so even if you think you're good, it's a whole new world right now. And FDA trolls are looking at websites like they've never looked at websites before, particularly of cannabis, because not only are websites the new label, cannabis is the new pharmaceutical company in, in the context of FDA. So cannabis is now an area of focus for the FDA, right? And so having grown up in the pharmaceutical space on both sides of it, working for them, and if you will, you know, I don't say working against them because I was, I'm always on the side of the patient and the consumer. So in, it's not about working against pharma. And by the way, there's a lot of good that comes from pharma. Um, I by in no means mean to indict pharma. Um, I mean to indict the, the bad actors. Mm. Um, they, should, they should be held accountable um, and they should clean up their mess. Um, but now would be a really good opportunity um, to be proactive, whatever stage you are uh, in your brand or with your license and your brands um, to do a check, um, just like you would go to the doctor and, and do an annual exam, right? Things can change um, and things are changing in cannabis. So now would be a good time um, to, it's, I always say it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, in life, in law, and in cannabis. And it's never too late to have somebody audit your materials. Ha you know, review your product safety plan with an expert. Um, I'll tell you, any money that you spend doing that will be far less costly than the damage you will incur to your brand and let alone litigation costs and costs to defend yourself, whether in court or against a regulatory body. Um, it's, it's a lot less expensive um, and stressful, I promise you, um, to uh, do it sooner rather than later. And don't assume um, that you're too small to be found or too big to be taken down. And we saw that 
we saw that. I forecasted a year to the day. I was off by one day because I didn't account for the weekend. I forecasted that Cureleaf would get warned and the FDA would come after them pretty aggressively a year to the day that that happened. And it happened. Um, and, and this isn't to indict Cureleaf by any means. Um, uh, they were a pioneer. They are a pioneer. They're up to good, important things in the world. But they did get tagged. Um, and at the same day that Cureleaf got warned, um, in a multi-page letter, um, very scary. So did a lot of other small brands that you would never have heard of in remote Florida, in small locations in Tennessee. So assume that you will be found. Um, and I like to think of it instead of coming from a defensive place or assume that you will be found, why don't you embrace commercialization and compliance as an opportunity to distinguish yourself from all of the other brands that are muscling to get into this space. It leads me to one more comment related, one more thought that I had related to that, especially now, not only because of COVID and how everything has gone online, but also because of the influx of brands and everybody trying to get into this space and be successful, especially now it's difficult to cut through the noise from a marketing perspective. And I fear that just as what happened in the pharmaceutical industry, when you're trying to cut through the noise and distinguish yourself, brands will tend to stretch with their claims. They'll take risks that are outside, the, I call it the realm of reason. Um, I am, a, a, I, I call it, I use a lot of sports analogies and I call it sort of what the way I consult, I call it the zone of reasonableness. Um, and, you know, there are the extremes in this business. There are the, you know, I know one of your other speakers dropped the F-bomb, but I try not to. So I'm just going to say there, there are those that say, you know, you know, you know what to the FDA um, that this is a plant, it doesn't need to be regulated. Um, and uh, I'm not gonna, you know, there shouldn't be so many regulations and why can't we just put our product out there? And then there's others that are far more risk averse, um, very, you know, some, a, a client said to me the, the other day that um, don't hire a lawyer um, to, to, to do this with regulations and help you commercialize your product because you'll never make a dime. So there's the, there's the hyper conservative and then there's the ones that don't think that any regulations could, should exist at all because this is a plant and it's been around for what right. centuries, um, I guess. I, I say, I reject both of those. Um, and I say, get yourself within the zone of reason, the zone of reasonableness, right? And I have a pretty good sense after 35 years being on all sides of this, um, what's probably going to get you found out, if you will, um, and, and what's, what's probably not. But if you, if you shift your, the context, if you shift your thinking from how far can I push this to the 20-yard line on either, on either side, how far can I push it? How about what's the best way for me to market my product in a transparent way that conveys trustworthiness um, and has consumers keep uh, continue to come back. And I say the same thing to manufacturers. What's the best way that I can manufacture this product um, and get it tested 
so that I can really feel confident that I'm putting um, my best product out there and I'm, I'm okay. I don't fear the FDA. As a matter of fact, I welcome them come visit. Um, you know, uh, we don't have to sing Kumbaya, but you can have a look. I'm proud of what I've done. I've got nothing to hide. I used to say this in court, or at least in my mind, because it's an objectionable thing, but if you have nothing to hide, then why are you hiding it? So, and the opposite of that is if you can't cite it, don't say it. So I would offer those two thoughts up for marketers and manufacturers. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. And, you know, a lot of what you said kind of just ties back to a quote that I always go back to from Warren Buffett, which is it takes 20 years to build a reputation, but it only takes five minutes to destroy it. So I, it, it's just another one of those things. And like you said, that was a, that was a really in-depth, really insightful, elaborate explanation as to how all of this connects. So Sherry, for those who are thinking about, you know, reaching out to somebody like you with your skill set, with your expertise to maybe, maybe they are, you know, thinking about doing an audit, or maybe they do need a hand with, you know, thinking about how, you know, what the best way to approach one of their new, you know, business development opportunities may be. Um, how can people get a hold of you? And what's the best place for them to find you and, and connect with you and reach out to you? Thanks for that question. Um, uh, why not an email? Because <laughs> I, um, I think that's a, the best way to, to, to reach out. Um, and then LinkedIn, because my my mentor here, my, my uh, PR mentor here, Mike Major, has, is a real fan of uh, LinkedIn. So um, it's Sherry, S-H-E-R-I, and the last name is Tar, T-A-R-R. Believe it or not, there's actually two of us that spell our names that way on LinkedIn. Um, I am not the other one. <laughs> I am the one that comes up as chief advisor for 68 partners. That's LinkedIn. Please feel free to connect with me there. And my email is Sherry, S-H-E-R-I, at 68, the digit six, the digit eight, partners.com. Um, and uh, I, my tag is, is reach out because we can't do this alone. Um, and there's an expression, I believe it's a, it's a derivative of an of a African expression, um, I think Maya Angelou said it, so I'm gonna give somebody else credit. I've paraphrased, you know, fast alone, farther together. Um, and that's a bit of the concept behind 68 Partners is um, there is a lot of good that we can do in the cannabis space and we can all do well. Um, uh, and I believe together, um, we can help each other to do that. Um, this is a cannabis space is excruciatingly regulated. It's highly risky. It's highly competitive. Um, and not only should you not hesitate to reach out, you should take the opportunity to do that. Um, to help build a sustainable, valuable brand that consumers will keep coming back 
and licensed applicants can build an application and a business um, that sets them up for long-term success. Um, and I, I genuinely, I so look forward because I'm not a cultivator, I'm not a product developer. So I bring my skills to the sandbox that I bring is how can I, with my background and my particular skill sets, work with these expert cultivators, these expert brand developers, these experts like you, and how can we get the most number of safe and, and, and uh, products out there into the stream of commerce that improve the quality of people's lives? I had a front row seat for good and for bad to seeing products marketed that inadequately treated or injured. And I believe that cannabis done right, really there's so many opportunities to improve the quality of people's lives. And I, um, I'm, in a, I, I'm in a unique and humble position to help marketers and um, licensed applicants to do that. Um, that was completely unplanned. <laughs> um, and I didn't mean it to sound like a closing, but uh, um, yeah, those are, those, are, those are my thoughts that I, that I humbly share with all of your listeners. No, that's, that's great. And I'm sure, you know, myself included, we can, we can all tell how passionate you are about this and, you know, how much, how much force and, and education and experience you bring to the table. So it's, it's much appreciated. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time out, um, especially as we close out 2020 and look forward to 2021. So I want to wish you um, a super, super happy new year. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to jump on the show today. Mike, I am genuinely honored that somebody of your, um, PR prowess um, would think to invite me um, on your podcast. So thank you genuinely uh, for that and um, for your partnership um, in this journey with me and wishing everybody, if you hear this um, at the beginning of the, of 2021, um, I look forward to hearing from all of you and hopefully seeing all of you and let's have a happy and a healthy and a responsible and safe 2021. How about that? Absolutely. Sounds like a plan to me. All right. Well, that concludes this episode of a major journey podcast. See you all in the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Elland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. 
We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.